Five Things First Thing with JR Morning's Guy Gordon, Lloyd Jackson, and Jamie Edmonds. Well, hello there, February. So good to see you because it means we're that much closer to spring. 47 yes. days away now. Uh, Tigers pitchers and catchers show up two weeks from yesterday. Yeah. And we're going to seize on every one of those little spring-like <laughs> moments like robins in the, on the horizon and, uh, and welcome them in. Welcome to you on this Thursday, as we said, February 1st, 2024. Uh, going to be cloudy today. We're not going to see the sunshine that we saw yesterday, but it will be the warmest day of the week. So we'll take that where we can get it. Meantime, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing yesterday at the prompting of a senator who is no stranger to grandstanding, but did the right thing here. Mark Zuckerberg was forced to turn around and apologize to the families that his product has harmed. This was, I thought, at least substantive. They were talking about how to protect children. Yeah, and, and and saying, look, look at all the people in our audience. They're all holding up pictures of kids who were either sexually exploited, who got drugs on the Internet and died of overdoses, or... Bullying, yeah. unrealistic bullying. beauty standards, everything the Internet is. Yeah, and Holly called on Zuckerberg to, to, to look those people in the eye. Why, Mr. Zuckerberg... Why should your company not be sued for this? Why is it that you can claim you hide behind a liability shield? You can't be held accountable. Shouldn't you be held accountable personally? Will you take personal responsibility? And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing efforts to uh, to make sure that. No one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. It was an apology. Um, and he said, this is why we've built in these tools to try to help you. How many people know about all of the tools, though, guy? So on uh, Snapchat alone, uh-huh. there are 25 million users that you can tie as a teen. You, you, the parent can tie your accounts together so you can see what your teen is doing. Out of those 25 million teens that are on SNAP, only 400,000 parents, so 2%. Here's the problem. You can create a dummy account that your parents don't know about. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. st- but those don't protect. You could still have your child there with their phone. You can ask them to see their phone. Show me the app you're using. Go to the settings. See what birthday that they have used. That's true. To get into that uh, app. And if it isn't their real birthday... You change it so that a lot of the built-in safeguards are there. I agree with you. I just think kids know how to work around the system. There's a story on Nightly News, I believe, mm-hmm. yesterday where this young girl was there. A man was chatting with her and bought her a plane ticket to fly to him. She thought it was a boy. She thought it was a young boy. And she was sitting right next to her mom on the couch doing it on her phone. Yeah. And as I watched that, the question occurred to me, why didn't mom at some point say, hey, honey, who are you talking to? Well, that, and, and, you know, I'm we have to doing, take some accountability I, I as well. But here's, yeah, here's my, yeah, Parents exactly. have to take some accountability as well. If though. you're relying on the gov- federal government or these very profit-driven apps to to take to protect your child for you, your faith is misplaced. Mm-hmm. And there are there are three things that are out there that you can do today. Just setting uh, your child's account from public to private. 
going into settings, seeing what their birthday is. There's a stitching. There are things to do. For yeah, sure. there. Are, you know, there and there are some really good uh, hacks and self helps that you can find online today. By all means, do them because it, it, Congress has been talking about this. For Since how many the internet years? Like, came about and social media came about, and Amy Klobuchar said that she's like, "This has been for 28 years. Let's right. do something." Right, and she kind of put it back on on them, uh, on, on being on Congress. But I, I, Graham Lindsey Graham said, "Look, there's absolutely no accountability here. Every American who's been wronged has to have somebody to go to to complain. There's no commission to go to that can punish you." There's not one law in the book because you oppose everything we do, and you can't be sued. That has to stop, folks. There was a great moment where they said, look, when a door pops out of a Boeing airplane, there's this whole regulatory and safety apparatus that kicks in. There is nothing like that when a child dies because they got drugs on the Internet or were exposed to harmful content. And Lindsey Graham said, you may not mean this, to Zuckerberg, but you yeah. have blood on your hands. The companies before us, I know you don't mean to, it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. This is very personal because I have a little girl who's going to grow up in this era. What are the protections there? I'm going to do my best with the phone and everything. So let's hopefully Congress do something. Yeah. Pass some laws. There is this child safety law that's out there. And uh, there was a, a real sense, and Klobuchar said this yesterday, she had a real sense that this was a tipping point mm-hmm. and that they'll finally get that passed. But how different. watered yeah. down will it be? And you still have this civil liability protection uh, for for social media companies. And, and, and doing away with that has a whole other series of consequences as a result. Riveting testimony in the Jennifer Crumbly case yesterday. A, a lot of... it centering on this salacious information that she was having an affair with a Dearborn firefighter. Mm -hmm. But a bigger issue was she lied to the man about what she knew about her son. Yeah, in the Jennifer Crumbly uh, trial that continued yesterday, police officers testified about finding the couple hiding in an art studio with Oakland County Sheriff Lieutenant Sam Marsban recalling Jennifer's reluctance to surrender her phone despite a suspicious message she sent to her son. Can I get my computer up, please? Well, it's not it's not coming through. But Marsban found uh, her language peculiar when she remarked he's going to have to suffer. Also, it was a witness, Luke uh, Kitely, who uh, was uh, working inside of that warehouse that they found the car in. And he said, you know, he was the one who saw the um, license plate and put two and two together because he had saw the license plate on television. He saw that that was in the parking lot. He called police. And then you have Brian Malo. She's the firefighter. <laughs> And Jennifer's uh, confidant, he testified about their extramarital affair. Now, the defense raised allegations of police coercion, prompting revelations about the affair. Despite efforts to delete messages, evidence of Jennifer's desperation and pleas for support surfaced. On the day of the shooting, Jennifer Crumley messaged Maloche and told him that she had to go to her son's school for a meeting and that she was afraid he might do something dumb. Well, Maloche responded by asking Jennifer... Where's the firearm that you bought your son? The mother told Maloch that the gun was in her vehicle and that he told her that it should not be there. But the gun was not in her vehicle. The gun was actually in her son's backpack who was at school. And then he received a message uh, from Jennifer Crumbly saying, 
um, you know, I'm on the run, basically helicopters. You know, I don't know where I'm she, going, but I will we'll, I'll message you. She's also griping to him about how nonchalant school officials were not owning up to the fact that perhaps the reason they were so nonchalant was because she had not disclosed the existence of the weapon that they bought her for Christmas. Right. right. I think this is the worst for her. That Having was a damning. text message saying, yes. I think he might do something dumb, which means she had that train of thought. Yes. And yet you sent him, you, you, you left him at school, you didn't immediately take him to a counselor, and you didn't tell the school about the weapon. And this guy, this person saying yeah. to her, what about the gun? So she thought about it in that moment when she read the text. Yeah. Here's Absolutely. the crazy thing. Her lover was asking more intelligent questions than the school <laughs> officials <laughs> right. were. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because he had been on Facebook. He had seen that they had bought them this uh, him this weapon. And something else they're trying to prove, you know, did she spend more time with the with the lover than she did dealing with well, her son? And here was the crazy thing. Probably. I mean, the yeah. defense attorney worked very hard to keep that testimony out in pretrial right. motions. Exactly. <laughs> this was wild. Why would she allow that in there? It is pre- prejudicial. There will be women and men sitting on that jury saying let me get this straight. On the day that your son is having all of these troubles, you're arranging liaisons with your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what was gained by having that man's testimony. If she thought that she would somehow impeach him by saying that he was coerced, it didn't work. Nope. You've left a... Uh, and this came from the defense. The defense yes, wanted right. it out. And, and when she gets on the, on the stand, because she's supposed to testify... I was texting back and forth with Marie yesterday, who was monitoring it as we all were, and Mm -hmm. I said, I got to tell you, I think there's going to be an insufficient counsel appeal coming out of this because I think the the defense attorney booted it big time yesterday by by allowing that. Yeah. Yeah. Local 4's Paula Tupman will be with us at 649 to talk more about the Crumbly case. All right. And when we come back, um, by the way, coming up at 635, we're going to be talking interest rates. Yesterday, Jerome Powell uh, not hinting that these interest rate cuts that the market and the housing market is desperately looking for, that they are in our immediate future. That caused a 300-point correction uh, on the uh, markets, and they are all still trending lower this morning. Uh, so we will get to that at 635. In the meantime, uh, a Hezbollah group says, we're not going to attack Americans anymore, as if they aren't still going to be planning and helping others to execute those things. What should be the response be to retax and the deaths of our people in the Middle East? We'll talk to General Jack Keane next on JR Morning at 619. Iranian-backed militias took the lives of three brave American soldiers in an attack in Jordan. Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffat all lost their lives in a drone attack that was completely foreseeable. Uh, that these uh, Iranian-backed militias had not been ter- deterred by any form of retaliation that the Biden administration had been offering up. So where does that leave us now? How do we make it stop? Who better to talk about than the man that more or less predicted this outcome? Sadly, uh, two to three weeks ago, retired four-star General Jack Keane, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Delighted to be here. I hate it when you're right, General, but you said that the, the Biden administration was so paralyzed by their fear of escalating this war with Iran and its proxies that it failed to effectively retaliate. So if you were giving advice in the Oval Office today, what do you what would you tell the president would be a meaningful response that could help end this? 
Yeah. I, I would tell him that what we have to focus on is not the fear of Iranian provocation, uh, not the fear of Iranian escalation. We have to focus on just what you said. What will it take to stop it? I, I would tell him uh, that we need, really need to reset our strategy when it comes to Iran, and three parts to that. One, diplomatically, stop the appeasement and negotiations to that we've done with the Iranians over the nuclear deal. Let's gather the international community to further isolate Iran, given this horrific behavior that we've watched for the last several months. Number two, return to the maximum economic sanctions that the Trump administration was administering. Make sure all the loopholes are covered and engage China directly to have them stop buying Ukrainian oil, and if they don't, we should sanction them as well. And then the third thing is a is militarily look at stopping as much as we possibly can the capabilities that the Iranian-backed militias have uh, in Iraq and Syria, who've been conducting the attacks against our U.S. bases. Now I think somewhere around 165. 166 uh, since October, but also recognize that Iran is driving all of this, and as a result of that, then you have to deal with them. And I would focus a military action against the IRGC for our audience to understand that is the organization inside Iran that arms, uh, funds, and trains these militias. That's the Hezbollah, the Houthis and the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and, and Syria, and and also as well uh, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They are all their proxies. The IRG supervises them. So we should deal with the IRGC. They have coastal bases with uh, naval ships. Uh, they have coastal uh, mil other military bases as well. and. And also, we should focus on their leaders. Uh, which ones we attack, certainly that, that's up to CENTCOM to present. But I would focus on that because it, 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 it doesn't attack something commercially, which would involve civilian casualties. And recognize that the civilian population in Iran is very much opposed to the regime and the mullahs. Mm -hmm. And even when the Trump administration had profound impact on them economically, they were not blaming the United States for their economic situation. They were blaming the mullahs because they were conducting, and they would hold up signs, foreign wars. And this is the proxies conducting activity throughout the, the Middle East region. So that, that would be my my recommendation and, and try to do it in a sustained way, not, not try to do it, you know, in, in terms of military action in one night and, and make certain that it's comprehensive enough really to get their message. Iran will reattack, and there's no doubt about that, much as they did after we took down Qasem Soleimani, but it's unlikely that they would continue. And why is that? because they really don't want to expand the war and and have a confrontation with the United States. Uh, and, and the principal reason is 
They want to preserve their regime, and they know full well a war with the United States would mean the end of their regime. And, and that is something that the Biden administration cannot get in their head because they, they clearly focus on the fear of escalation as opposed to focusing on what it takes to stop the Iranians and recognize that the 43-year history in dealing with Iranians is they don't want a direct confrontation with the United States. That is why they have the proxies. And they don't care if, if Houthi fights to the very last man or the very last rocket uh, in taking on the United States and Israel. That's the reality of it. And the Biden administration uh, hopefully moves in that direction. I'm not optimistic that they will. Well, General, you know, I know the U.S. is not looking to escalate, but the attack over the weekend was escalatory, you know, make no mistake about it. So, you know, as you said, do we do we hit the proxies, but do we cut off the head of the snake and, 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 and do something with Iran? And if it, ex, you know, if it expands, it, it, it does, but we have to protect our, our people. Oh, yeah. well, that's, absolutely. Well, that's what I just said. Of course, we do have to deal with Iran. Uh, itself. And listen, let's recognize the fact the president keeps using the term, well, I don't want to expand the war. Well, the Iranians have expanded right. the war. Hezbollah has attacked Israel on average six times every single day, and it's 80,000 Israelis that have, are displaced from northern Israel as a result of those continuous attacks. The Houthis have disrupted the flow of shipping through the Suez Canal in excess of 50% expect, uh, impacting the global supply chain. That is an expansion of the war. And this staggering amount of attacks by Iranian-backed Iraqi and Syrian militia, now I think 165, 166 attacks since October, 80 attacks from the, from the time the administration began in January of 2021, up to October, all of that has been an expansion of of the war and recognize it for what it is. General, do you think there's this perception that the administration isn't protecting U.S. troops? Could fewer Americans enlist in the military going forward? No, um, I think certainly there's retention and recruiting problems uh, in uh, because you know. We've done surveys. I'm on a congressional commission that's looking at the national defense strategy and and the, the propensity for people to want to join the military and see it as something that would add value to their life has, has gone down. And sadly, many of them believe that if you do join the military, yeah. um, you're going to be damaged as a result of traumatic brain injuries or catastrophic loss. Uh, uh, catastrophic injuries like we've seen in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and those are, are realities out there that we that we have to deal with. Right. I, I think, I mean, I, I do appreciate your comment because I've said this publicly uh, before. Our, our, it's heartbreaking to see our troops killed because, it, I mean, the fact we seem to just be waiting for it to happen, and then we're going to take some some kind of dramatic action when we should have taken the action to prevent that from that from happening, not wait until it happens. And, right. and that, I think, is irresponsible behavior on the part of the administration. General Keene, always appreciate your insights, uh, sir. Thank you for being with us.
Yeah, delighted talking to you and, and as well as your audience. Thank you very right. much. The Federal Reserve met yesterday and decided to keep rates the same for the fourth consecutive meeting after raising rate interest rates 11 times since March of 2022. People who are considering leaving their houses, just saying that could be anybody, perhaps us, um, <laughs> very interested in all of this. So I'm very interested in David Hall, president and CEO of Hall Financial, giving us the scoop. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of it that they kept it the same, but they're indicating they could cut interest rates later on this year? Yeah, I think it was uh, uh, sort of a no surprise meeting. Um, I think that, you know, one of the worst kept secrets right now is that the Fed is going to lower rates this year if everything goes according to plan. And what's really interesting is, you know, tomorrow we have a jobs report that could move the market that the Fed wants to look at before their March meeting. They'll actually get another jobs report before they have to meet. So we're going to get a lot of intel on the economy uh, before they have to do anything. I think it's, in my mind, 50-50 if they're going to lower in March or in May, depending on what happens with inflation and the overall economy. But basically, the Fed has sent some very clear signals that they're done raising. They're holding tight for now because they want to see some more data. And as they start to lower this year, people's credit card rates are going to go down. You're also going to have probably mortgage rates going down, most likely. And uh, it's going to be uh, well-received for a lot of folks that have had uh, to deal with some higher interest rates here over the last, you know, 18 months. It hasn't been easy. Dave, are you going to start seeing people if those when those interest rates, if those interest rates go down, seeing people doing a lot of refis? Well, yeah, I think, yes. Uh, I also think that we've already started to see that. You know, 90 days ago, rates, rates touched on – eight percent and rates are getting very close now to six percent and a lot of folks don't realize that if they bought a house let's say between october of 2022 and october of 2023 they have an opportunity right now to refinance to a lower rate because of what's gone on with the whole cycle of interest rates but yes as rates continue to go down we will see even more refinances Obviously, cash-out refinances are the biggest segment of the market. A couple days ago, there was a stat out that uh, home appreciation and home equity is at an all-time high. And, and for folks that bought a house 9 to 12 months ago, and a lot of folks thought that maybe that wasn't a good time to buy because of higher interest rates, their home values basically all went up. And uh, now they have the chance to refinance to a lower rate. So it turned out to be a really good move. And we don't see housing values going down anytime in the near future. I think it's going to continue to to rise, albeit at a more modest pace. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for folks in 2024. And it seems to be defying logic and tradition, David. I mean, Metro Detroit home values rose 8.2% in November in spite of the escalating mortgage rates that we saw in that month. You're right. They have declined somewhat since, but how are, how are these prices defying gravity? Normally when you see the cost of borrowing go up, that kind of depresses the, the home prices. It's been really amazing guy. And I think that, you know, we had an unprecedented event uh, in history in uh, 2021 where we saw these mortgage interest rates go to levels that I would have never thought we'd seen, you know, 30-year fixed rates in the high twos, low threes. And so what happened is a lot of folks uh, 
grabbed onto those rates and have since not wanted to sell their homes for obvious reasons, thus creating a reduced uh, inventory of homes to buy. And anytime you have reduced inventory, right. you have escalating prices on the inventory that is on the market. So but I is think- it worse here than in other large metropolitan areas? Because they're only seeing price gains that are about uh, two-thirds that size. Yeah, well, I think it's every market is a little bit different. All all markets have low inventory. There are there there are very very few markets that have uh, uh, more inventory than than they can deal with. So we're talking about sellers' markets basically all over the country, some more than others. But I think like if you take a state like Florida, for instance, where a lot of folks, you know, during uh, the COVID pandemic and and soon afterwards. We're moving to, I mean, you saw incredible price escalation of homes there. And so with that, now we've seen that it's not as, the inventory situation there's gotten a little bit better than in Michigan, but still not great. So uh, it's just different in every region of the country. But yeah, the, the inventory levels of homes for sale have driven a lot of this appreciation. Um, you talk about a seller's market. We could sell our house, but then where would we go is the <laughs> <Right>. question. Um, yeah. Affordability, you say, is going to be the word of the year when it comes yeah. to buying a house. Yeah. Well, I think, that, you know, on that question, Jamie, that you just posed about where would you go, I actually think it's going to be easier uh, potentially now than it will be in six months. So, mm-hmm. in other words, especially in Michigan, you have an opportunity right now um, to purchase an, another home that I think is going to be easier today than it's going to be in six months. Because I think what's going to happen is as rates go down, there's going to be more interest in folks moving. Now, we may also see a loosening up of inventory. So it's kind of this fine line. But what we have seen is folks are getting out ahead right now of uh, interest rates going down, purchasing now because they know that they can always refinance later if rates cooperate because so many people have the same strategy of I'll wait for rates to go down, mm-hmm. then I'll go buy a house. You may end up in a much more serious bidding war in July or August of this year than you'd be in today. Um, so, you know, it's just a, it's a matter of timing and it's never easy. I mean, when you, when you can get top dollar for your house, like you can today, there's always a consequence to that. And the consequence of that today is a tougher time to find another house. Now, if you can't get top dollar, it's probably going to be easier to find another house. So I, you know, I counsel people that it's never perfect. It's almost in my 28 years, it's rarely a Goldilocks situation. And so this situation comes with some hair on it too. David, I'm I'm glad you're here because I wanted to uh, ask you about this when I saw this story uh, uh, last week about the residential neighborhoods in the city of Detroit, Uh, the property value increased like 23%. The mayor said that, uh, the city is growing more rapidly in home value than uh, the homes in Miami. Why? Why is that? Why is it so? Why does it go up so much here in this, like in the city of Detroit, as opposed to Miami's or other places? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. So, would you, you know, sometimes on the first of all, it's all good news. It's yes, great. I want to put that out there first. You know, when you start at a lower basis, you have a bigger opportunity for a percentage appreciation. I mean, Miami's been on fire for a long time. So for it to not be at the same level that Detroit is at this snapshot in time, I think is a little bit of a uh, not maybe a fair comparison. But I will say that there has been a lot of interest. Uh, More and more of the realtors and the clients that we talk to are doing business in the city of Detroit. I think that there's been 
more rehab work that has gone on, more neighborhoods are mm-hmm. becoming um, more desirable. So it's all good news and it's great. But I think anytime you look at percentage comparisons, uh, I, I think that uh, you can you can uh, make it look maybe not exactly like it is over like an extended period of time, but certainly great news. And, you know, as a guy that was uh, born and raised in Detroit, I love it. And I love to see the, the positive things that are all going on in the city. Really quickly, David, before we let you go, this is all happening in an election year. Republicans are ticked. They say that Powell's dragging his feet to give Biden the maximum bump when he finally does cut rates. Democrats are saying that they're sabotaging the economy because he's waiting too long. How confident are you that politics isn't corrupting his decision? (laughs) Uh, Okay, tough question, but quickly. (laughs) Uh, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but it always seems to work out this way, doesn't it? Um, so we'll see. And you're right. It's really amazing on both sides of the fence. You have jabs being always thrown back and forth. I would say this. I would say that I think that Powell and the Fed have done a pretty amazing job sort of threading this needle of Fed rate cuts. Yeah. And I think it is interesting timing that we are going to see rates go down uh, when an incumbent in an election really needs it. So I don't know what to make of that. I try to stay in my lane and stay out of politics. <laughs> well, and but That's making making inflation the key enemy here is an important yeah. thing to make sure that that battle is won first. And I think yeah, that does. just over three percent still, guy trying to get to two percent. But yeah. I think they've done a heck of a job, and I think it's a job that can be heavily criticized. And I think you got to give credit to the Fed for what they've done. Well, yeah, and all the negative ninnies out there said that we were going to be in a recession now, and while things yeah. are slowing down, it looks like a soft landing. David, thank you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Great show. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk more with Paula Tutman on the Crumbly trial. More tidbits coming out each and every day. Stick with us. It's at 649. Consumers Energy wants to help your business save energy and money. They've got a small business store and it's got energy saving products at low prices. It's really amazing. It's free shopping. Shop the store for great prices on things like LED lighting, advanced power strips, water fixtures, air purifiers, and more. It helps to make your business more energy efficient, and you can reinvest those savings into your business's future. Start saving today by visiting consumersenergy.com slash business store. That's consumersenergy.com slash business store and shop and save today. It was day five of the Jennifer Crumbly trial. Yesterday's proceedings revealing startling revelations, including details of an extramarital affair and dramatic moments preceding the arrest of the Oxford High School shooter's parents. Testimony from law enforcement officers who discovered Jennifer and James Crumbly concealed in an art studio shed light on the intense events that fateful night. And uh, to get some insights on the day five testimony, we have with us Paula Tutman, reporter from WDIV Local 4. Good morning, Paula. Nice to have you here. Lloyd, good morning to you. Good morning, WJRP. <laughs> so listen, I, I, I thought the judge had ruled that the extramarital affair evidence was not going to be admissible in the case. So how did it get in yesterday? Yeah, that was um, insane. It, 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 can I say that? Oh, yeah, I just did. Um, it, it, it really crept in, and the way it crept in was absolutely stunning and so uh the way this gentleman 
uh, Malosh. What Brian Malosh was introduced was as a high school pal, and these two did a lot of Facebook messaging. However, they would always delete the messages once they sent the messages. Uh, at the end of the day, what the prosecution was trying to get to uh, was basically that during the uh, his interview process, um, because he had so much communication with Jennifer Crumbly prior to and then directly after the shooting, but his story kind of changed um, in the course of three different interviews. Um, and so defense attorney Shannon Smith jumps in for her cross, and she is hammering home a point that she's trying to make that this guy was being coerced and intimidated. I mean, these are, that, that's a pretty serious charge when you are mm -hmm. accusing police officers of intimidating mm -hmm. uh, a witness in order to change his story. He's a firefighter. He's a captain. Um, and, you know, she claims in really quite soliloquy-like questioning that, uh, you know, they're saying, you know, you could lose your benefits, you could lose your job, you could lose your rank, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, what she's trying to sneak in is that, that the reason he was possibly changing his story is that he was being coerced, but somehow it got out that there was an extramarital affair. Okay, prosecution jumps up. Hey, you said that's not, you know, you successfully suppressed that. You know, an affair, the marriage is not on trial. The relationship is not on trial. She's on trial for involuntary manslaughter. And Shannon Smith basically says, you know what? I want this. I want this admitted. Bring it. I don't know what that strategy is. We talked to a. Yeah, that I mean, <laughs> the gain was hard to d divine there, Paula, because she's exposed her client to the scorn of being involved in an extramarital affair and maybe being more focused on that than the plight of her own son. And, the, and this is the interest. You're absolutely right, because all of a sudden, so the entire afternoon was not about, you know, deleting messages. Oh, she cares more about the horses than she did her kid. She knew he was spiraling downwards. She still, you know, they gifted him a gun, trained him up, didn't tell the school. These are the things, those are the building blocks that the prosecution has to build to connect those dots to say, hey, you are indeed culpable. Instead, the entire afternoon was about the salacious affair and how, you know, she was getting him to basically do recon, social media recon. You know, is, has this account been deleted? Clear your cash. Okay, delete this message. Note to self, what did we not learn with Kwame Kilpatrick and this about text messages? You can't delete them. If the police want to find them, they're going to find them with forensics. And so that whole line of questioning really kind of hinged on this. And so now you've got a jury looking at her marriage as opposed to, hey, is she criminal, criminally culpable mm -hmm. for this? So anyway, th that's kind of how that happened. Uh, it took, I think, everybody by surprise. And it, it really does change the, the course of the case. But guys, on Local 4 Plus today, I, I, you know, I do want to encourage people to click on and join us. You can go to clickondetroit.com because we're also going to be unpacking this whole thing, this tender tightrope walk about parenting on trial.
Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's really dangerous. That's a dangerous thing. You can't put parenting on trial. It's not against the law to be a bad parent. Paula. Unless, you know, something bad happens. Yeah. Hi, hi Paula. It's Jamie. Is, my hi. question is about the text message that came out where she says, I think he's going to do something dumb. Isn't that pretty damning? There's, Jamie, so much damning. Uh, yes. So I, that, that is damning if she said that prior to that act. So she was in that school. She had the option to take him home, yet she didn't. And then her immediate text message is, I think he's going to do something dumb. Now, what uh, what the the defense is kind of alluding to is they didn't know that they didn't think he was going to kill other people. They thought he was going to kill himself. Okay, but shouldn't you still step in? You know what I'm saying? So I don't I don't know if one is worse than the other if Mm. you did not proactively do something. Right. You just left the school, left them there. Yeah, you just right. You just left the school. Yeah. Would uh, Paula? Do we know when she will actually Jennifer Crumbly will actually take the stand? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so the the prosecution expects to rest today. I, 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 by my count, they've got two witnesses left, maybe three, um, and then we're getting uh, the idea that the defense will jump in this afternoon. Uh, so is she going to go first? I don't know. I don't because I don't understand. I'm not a legal expert. I'm a journalist. But, you know, I'm talking to legal experts don't quite understand the strategy. Does she need to go first so that, you know, she can be, you know, in front of the jury and, you know, get those get those answers out so that they can try to forget what happened yesterday and this mounting evidence that perhaps she may have cared more about the horses than her kid. So I don't know, mm-hmm. but today, possibly tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, attorneys say all the time, my client's going to take the stand and then, oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So it's hard to say. Paula, thank you so much for uh, being here with us on JR Morning. We'll be making sure we uh, check you out on Local 4 Plus. Thanks, guys. Have a fantastical day. You, you too. Well. too. Um, the, the other piece of testimony that was damning here was that she was asked about the gun by her lover. Yeah. Said, hey, I saw on Facebook that you gave Ethan a gun for Christmas. Where's Where's the weapon if oh. you're concerned about him doing something dumb? And, and she, she lied. Yeah. It's with me. I have it. She said, yeah, it's in, in my car. So she was not only misleading, she's misleading herself, she misled the school, and she misled her confidant. We'll be right back. Welcome to February, everybody. It's kind of mild out there. This is going to be the warmest day of the week. So February coming in a little bit like a lamb, which uh, we will take. We're good with it. Exactly. And uh, we're just 47 days away from spring. The Tigers report in a mere two weeks. And we're excited for all those signs of spring. Um, One of the uh, most damning reports I've seen in a long time released yesterday, not getting nearly enough fanfare or attention, and that is that Stanford and Harvard have looked at how states have bounced back from pandemic-era learning loss. Here in the state of Michigan, we lost a half a grade level in math. We lost nearly a half a grade level in reading, and that's an average. Some districts, including so-called wealthy districts, lost 80% or more to learning loss. How have we bounced back in the wake of the millions and millions of federal dollars that were thrown our way in 2022 and 2023? We haven't. We haven't. We've increased an anemic 7% of a grade level in math and just 1% in reading. With the improvement at this this pace, Harvard uh, extrapolates that full recovery will require five additional years for students in math and decades to recover in reading. So what 
the heck did we spend all the money? What did you do with it? And why isn't it more effective? And there is a district-by-district breakdown here, and uh, they cite districts like Portage and Ann Arbor, higher-income districts that are still 80% behind a grade level for their students. They've, and some districts, they claim, like Rochester, has seen no improvement at all in the year in spite of some efforts. And there's a national story that other states are totally back from pre-pandemic levels. Exactly. They're looking at 30 states in this report. There were five states that did worse than Michigan, uh, but there were 20 states that did much better. And you're right, Jamie. Some of them are not only all the way back, but are better than where they were in 2019. What did they do? Right. What's the magic in those other places that we're not doing That is something that Harvard and Stanford are not talking about. Now, we're going to be talking with Thomas Kane, who's part of this uh, policy research group, and ask that very question. What separates the improvers from those that are still stagnant? Mm -hmm. You know, what were the best practices here that made a difference? And perhaps they don't know yet. And they, they do say, yeah, poverty does matter, that the impoverished schools are having a harder time bouncing back. But you can't broad brush that, that some no. very well-to-do districts are having uh, very, very poor consequences as a result. Um, but really concerning, we're going to be talking with them coming up at 835, a little over an hour from now. You know, uh, we told you yesterday, Guy, about the, the devastating dog mauling in oh. Detroit uh, that left a uh, man, Harold Phillips, fighting for his life. Well, the father of six was attacked by three dogs on Monday as he was walking home from the bus stop on Detroit's west side. He was coming home from the mall after purchasing some clothes for a job interview. The owner of the dogs, Roy Goodman, expressed deep remorse, acknowledging that his dogs had bitten others before, including a child. Goodman admitted that one of the dogs should have been put down after that previous incident. Now, as Phillips undergoes treatment, his family has launched a GoFundMe to support them during this time. The family has also sought legal representation. Detroit Animal Care and Control has euthanized the three dogs involved in the attack and seized the fourth. Court records reveal a history of violations for the Goodmans, including having too many dogs and failing to prevent dangerous behavior. Despite facing fines and potential loss, Goodman remains focused on saving Phillips' life, saying, I could lose everything, and even if I lose everything, to save his life would be worth it. Well, it's nice that you say that now, but you had a dog, and we should be pointing out one of the previous incidents involved a a bite of a child. Of a child. Mm -hmm. And that dog was not euthanized then. No. Why not? What happened? They said that it was provoked. And so that so they brought charges, but those charges later got dropped. They said it was provoked and it wasn't very severe. That the bite wasn't severe enough right. to merit destroying the dog. There's responsibility that comes with dog ownership, and it is. I've done so many stories about people who just don't keep them pent up the way they're supposed to. They're and also for the dog's well being. And when you know that your dog Both. has bitten people before, yeah. especially a child, and you don't do enough to keep those dogs on your property, yes. uh, there is no fence high enough. And and the liability for him, and he says he may lose it all. Yeah. Um, there should be criminal charges involved here. There was a failure to act responsibly on his part. You know, we, we were talking about this within the context well, of Jennifer Crumbly. Jennifer Crumbly, right. Uh, the same thing should, being, uh, should be applied here. This was a foreseeable outcome. Yes. Uh, uh, busy, tax- yeah, busy day on Capitol Hill yesterday. We talked about the social media. Dare we say bipartisan? Well, <laughs> watch out. What? 
The House approved a $78 billion tax package Wednesday with large bipartisan support. The vote was 357 to 70, with mainstream lawmakers in both parties driving the House's first major bipartisan bill of the year to pass it. And this is great because, as we know, lawmakers have labored to legislate as of late. Now, Representative Jason Smith is a Republican from Missouri. He calls this pro-growth, pro-jobs, pro-America. The package would expand the child tax credit, though it's scaled back from the pandemic level, and restore a set of business tax breaks related to research and development and capital expenses. But it's going to hit a snag in the Senate. Senate Republicans have saying, you know, this is... uh, there are political challenges here. This would be a win for the president and Democrats. Senator Grassley came out and said, well, we, we don't want to give Biden a win in an election. Year. Right. And they don't particularly like the um, child tax credit. Uh, you can use your previous year's earnings the way this is written. And they say that will say, you know, you don't have to work. You could discourage work. Right. So it's going to hit a snag in the Senate, but at least something passed. Even though the data doesn't necessarily support that. No. Um, but yeah, no, it's, this is pro family also, if you have a child tax credit there. So two quick, uh, two quick health things, uh, increasing your cardiovascular health by 3% will reduce your prostate cancer risk by 35%. So get on the bike, get on a bike, start running. Even weight training can help you if you have cardiovascular disease that, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be aerobic. Lifting weights, resistance training can do the, be same the bands benefit thing. The bands, yeah, great option. Mm-hmm. A little TRX, <laughs> yeah, you know what that is. <laughs> no, but okay, you They're, could explain it to me I'll during business feed. WJR's <laughs> business feed. Here's time for Jeff Sloan. Brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world to get us caught up on the startup and tech sector in our economy. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. Remember when it was predicted that brick-and-mortar retail is all but dead? How can the idea of selling out of a local store beat the efficiency and convenience of buying online, right? Well, as it turns out, the doomsday predictions for brick-and-mortar retail's death were wrong. Of course, during the pandemic, we were all forced to go online to do much of our shopping. But post-pandemic, people have returned to shopping in stores significantly. Commercial real estate is not only back, but back for good. In fact, it's so good that finding and securing a good retail space is getting harder than ever with a vacancy rate for shopping centers nationwide at a 15-year low. The trend today is much less about either or, that is online versus brick and mortar, and more about an omni-channel approach that includes both online and brick and mortar working in harmony to make each of these retail channels stronger as a result of the other. For example, you might see something in a store and then go home and buy it online. Or you might see something online and want to purchase it after seeing it and or say trying it on. And of course, that can only happen in a brick and mortar store. So for now anyway, brick and mortar remains a central part of retail and looks to remain that way. Even the biggest e-commerce sites, Amazon, Warby Parker, for example, are pursuing brick-and-mortar complements to their online channels. Just think of Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods by way of example. For me, I find this really encouraging news for local, independently-owned retailers. Just be sure to pursue an omni-channel approach for your store to make sure that that sale happens wherever your target customers want to make it. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR.
It's Thursday. That means we're going to head to the couch with Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. We love Thursdays. <laughs> well, that's Welcome. great. Welcome. Yes. What do you got for us today? Well, I'm just back from a ski trip and I can barely move, so I'm glad to just sit down. Oh, here. I got the anvil right here for you, right, Cal. Dual string. I also Nick and just I were walking back. down the hall. I we'll was discuss. like, oh, okay. yes. Okay, so today's. Dr. Steve, we have a family issue. Over the holidays, my 26-year-old younger brother was extremely rude to us, and I would like some input on what we should say to him and how to handle the situation. He lives in another town than the rest of the family. A few of us live away from our hometown, and we haven't seen him much since he graduated college and moved to Chicago. In December, we all came back to our hometown with our families to our parents' house for a bit of a reunion, but he rarely spent any time with the rest of us without his partner. Two years ago, he came out to us as being gay, and we have all accepted him. But we never got more than even a minute with just him anymore. My parents felt like the two of them were on vacation together and just happened to be staying in our home, like it was a hotel. My siblings and I felt like he only wanted to be with his partner of two years, and we never got any time with just him or even just his partner. It was very awkward, and there are lots of hurt feelings. I don't want to estrange him more, but if this is how he and his partner are going to be with the rest of us, it will only cause more hurt feelings in the family. How do I get him to see that he can't disown and disregard his family like this without making it blow up worse? Yikes. Mm. We talked about so many holiday, how things can get sticky within families with holidays. And I think this comes from a really good place in that the family wants to spend time with this sibling that they love very much. And when there's another person that maybe you don't know that well in the house... It makes it tough. You feel like you can't really get that quality time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, though. But yeah. well, the, answer, the answer is that the, the new boyfriend or girlfriend, doesn't matter the nature of the relationship, yeah. has to be self-aware enough to know that they deserve alone time, that you cannot monopolize your loved one's time when there are other family members there. Be self-aware enough to know that you got to share Absolutely. And if you're coming home to to your family to visit, you, know, you spend time with your family, you got to spend some time with your family. If you want to go on vacation with your significant other, go on a vacation. Go somewhere and you guys can just have a good, great time. But when you're coming back and family's involved, you got to spend some time with the family. So you you would confront the brother? No, I'm going to sit down as if I was the sibling, I would sit down with the boyfriend to say, hey, We love you. We're happy you guys are together. Understand that we need some time with him, too. And I realize that might be awkward for you because you're the new guy here. But just understand that you need to share him a little more with the rest of us. I think that would create the brother then would get really defensive. I would talk to the brother and say, look, we want to spend more time with you. All right. Let let me. It's going to take a second here. But my thought (laughs) is that that I can't. We can't really answer this well because we're missing a certain frame of reference that that we have to cover. And even this is a tricky situation for me to discuss as a straight white male because I'm going to talk about things that even I can't relate to. But here's how I'd get into it. A few years ago, I attended the funeral of a friend of mine, and there were probably 400 people there, and I was the only white face in the room, the only white person. And this is something we should all experience because it's only then that you realize what it's truly like to be different than everyone else around you. And even me as a secure and confident person felt myself searching for the security of another white face in the room. And I was self-conscious, aware of my differences and search of my people. And it was such a, 
an unusual but you know uh, personal growth experience because it's such a rare feeling to feel that different but we all deal with that sometimes we're the only you know woman in the room we're the only male we're the only white face we're the black face we're the overweight we all try have being types. a northerner going to yeah. school in the south ah yeah, yeah. I mean, right. like yeah. yeah you're the only person with gray hair in this room <laughs> <laughs> Head okay, of hair. I, mean, I have a little bit okay. of my beard, but. <laughs> okay, but but how that how that relates to this email is it because people in the LGBT community experience this difference all the time in the world being out there, but they have an added level of it in the, in the rest of our world. Whatever circumstances you're in, whatever differences and discriminations and hates and whatever you have to deal with, you can always go home to your people. Mm-hmm. Okay except in the LGBTQ community. In that community, not only are you discriminated against out in the world, you're often discriminated at at home because you're an outsider even in your home, okay? Which is a thing some of us don't even think about, that imagine what it's like to be, you know, different in the world and at home you're not even accepted for who you are. Fully. Fully. Now, I'm not making a comment about right, wrong, or people's opinions or that stuff. All I'm trying to say is this is what, people feel like this is their experience and it's one of the reasons there's such a strong sense of community in the lgbtq community because many people have to create their own family because they don't feel accepted and embraced in their own family but this scenario is you can make it outside the lgbtq community it's still about a a significant other monopolizing their time so i do think that there's probably some ways because it's the first visit and you know they were together and maybe they're young there's lots of reasons that i think maybe the brother was rude and the things that you guys said would Mm -hmm. be things to do but i just think you have to be careful because before you touch that subject you have to understand that the brother and the partner are still feeling very separate in the home they feel like they need their own sanctuary and I'd want to know from the family, if they were in my office, I'd want to say, well, I know you say you accepted him, but did you embrace him? Does he really feel like this is a safe place to be? Because he's come out, the partner doesn't know you. You have to make sure people feel like they're embraced and that they don't need to bring a safety blanket or a security blanket mm-hmm. with them. Because mm-hmm. otherwise we're, uh, you know, judging them for being rude and we don't even understand what they're feeling like. So mm-hmm. I think we have to talk about that first and understand that because that would change the way you approached him and I don't want you to put step in it that is very interesting because even within your family you think you're accepting of everything but they may not feel it they may not feel it so right. they need the security blanket of this other person with them and will right. it take some time like some more visits and to to maybe get that feeling of it, you know it, it's gonna take time it's gonna take some of the conversations we talked about yeah. but it's really about embracing rather than accepting like people always say i accept yeah. or whatever but you have to embrace them because they need their family to be that place i, I guess i would like to know that in in this as far as the significant other goes this this new person that's been brought in how defensive were they are they jealous of of have and have they expressed that to the brother to say uh, look, I don't. I, I I need you to spend time with me, not so much time with your family. You know, is he is he laying some guilt on him for spending matu- time with his own sibling? Maturity level too, exactly. depending on who that right. is. Right. You know? Yeah, you know? and so yeah, I'm, all of those factors are play it there because you don't go to someone's house and not spend. You know, you don't do some of those basic things. I just think it's all people are, are in my office all the time, and it's blown up because they've confronted the issue before they really understand the depth of the 
difference that has to go on, and you have to be careful. Be okay if mom and dad would weigh in and say, "Look, we get to see him three times a year together as a family. You get to see him every day. Mm -hmm. Just please acknowledge that we would we we really need you to share him with us." Right. But why does he feel the need to have someone so tight to him all the time? Right. Good. Because it's not it's not feeling safe. And it and when you're home. You want to be like just embraced literally and figuratively. Right. And if yeah. you don't feel that way, I could see why you would bring someone else in the mix and just have them there like constantly. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the part that you have to be careful of because huh. you want him to feel embraced. If he's embraced, then some of that stuff goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He feels more secure than he's less likely to, to, to glom on to the brother. Right. And, and too yeah. many people don't recognize that and they start, you're rude, you're rude, you're rude, and you're rude to mom, and they lose the brother because... He's not. You're, he's saying you're not understanding how separate yeah. I feel. But can we say the guests and fish rule should apply here? That any three the, days, three days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, that they're, applies. They're, they're part of that too, but and that's <laughs> universal. <laughs> yes. Has nothing to do <laughs> with no, that. No, no, that's, no, no, that's right. Right. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Well, that was a good one. Thank you. I thought it's interesting. Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Thank you. We really love Thursdays. (laughs) Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk to senior editor and columnist for the Detroit News, Daniel Howes, on President Biden. That's next. Detroit will host the President of the United States today, coming in for a campaign event with uh, the UAW, uh, kind of a, a get-out-the-vote moment before the uh, primary coming up uh, February 27th, I believe. It's uh, We'd love to be able to tell you where we may have some freeway closures and things like that, or when there might be a, a pause in arrivals and departures you know in our be. airspace, but they're not sharing exactly what his itinerary is yet, but so uh, continue to... To follow uh, Renee and our uh, traffic reporters, they'll let you know uh, what uh, what complications there may be out there as uh, we, we give the president uh, and his motorcade a, a wide berth when they come to town. But there is a question about how influential these visits are, and especially in light of the fact that in the 2020 election, 40 percent of union households voted for Donald Trump. Let's bring in uh, Daniel Howe, senior editor and columnist for the Detroit News, who has been watching uh, this dance between the UAW and the president, the the somewhat delayed endorsement. Daniel, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good. We know that these are very contrived events. They're very, mm-hmm. There's a lot of stagecraft that goes into them. How influential are they, really? Oh, I think they, they, they're important because they certainly underscore the importance of, of states and locations and, and, and the kind of voter that maybe these two, these two candidates are going to be vying for. Uh, I, look, I think despite the fact that we went, went through this months-long dance about whether the, and when the UAW was going to endorse Joe Biden, I think once they have, uh, they now have got a very powerful surrogate on their, on their side. Sean Fain will not back down rhetorically. I think we've already we know that from what we saw during the auto talks, and I think we know that uh, basically over the last few days uh, that will be the case in this presidential, and it will rattle President Trump. Um, it's already it's proved to have rattled him, uh, and he's not taken this this well. I think he thinks that the UAW are his people. I think he met with the Teamsters yesterday. That's mm-hmm. going to be another key endorsement um 
So I think I think this is significant in the industrial Midwest. This you, you this <laughs> you need Michigan to get to the presidency. I think we all know that. And uh, uh, so I think this is the beginning of what we're going to see many different visits by probably by both men. But I think President Biden is really going to be leaning on Michigan as a key constituency to help him retain the White House. Uh, Daniel, even though the UAW has endorsed uh, President Biden as a whole, doesn't necessarily mean rank and file will fall in line because, you know, the former president uh, got some votes from the UAW in that last election. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think that's right, uh, but I think that's been the case for a long time. I think the membership has t- intended to be more conservative than the leadership. The leadership has pretty much been lockstep pro-Democrat for for as long as anybody can remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's always been a pushback within the union by some people who are willing to be vocal. A lot of people figure it's not worth getting into the getting into the mix, but uh, I think it's going to continue to be. Uh, an issue, and uh, he's going to continue to have, Trump's going to continue to have voters within the rank and file. Trump may not say it, but he clearly took it personally if he mm-hmm. lashed out the way he did. So he cares. Oh, I think he cares a lot. Look, I mean, this is a guy who's got, we all know, a, a very brittle ego, uh, and he does not like being challenged, and he particularly doesn't like being challenged by people who uh, won't back down. And I think we're seeing that with a little bit with Nikki Haley. Uh, his frustration, and I think we're clearly seeing it with Sean Fain. Uh, you know, Sean is not gonna is not gonna shrink from the attacks from verbal attacks uh, from Donald Trump, and he's gonna give as good as he gets, and he's gonna go on to national TV talk shows like he did yesterday, I believe it was, with the with Morning Joe, and give as good as he gets, and uh, and is not gonna be intimidated. And I, and I think that's the kind of cert, which is why I think you're going to see the Biden team is going to be leaning on him as a as an effective surrogate. There was a, a question, well, though, and it, it, it was a nagging one about why they didn't endorse sooner. And Sean Fain said, well, we're waiting because we're looking. We've got concerns about the EV transition and we're looking for some assurances on the part of Biden administration that our workers won't be left behind at transmission plants, engine plants, things like that. Are you aware of anything that the Biden campaign has done to ease those concerns at all? Or has Sean Fain just conveniently set those concerns aside? I think it's probably the I'm not aware of anything. And so I would say it's probably the latter. But I I found the dance to be a little a little silly um, because I think we knew they weren't going to be endorsing Donald Trump in this in this cycle. Um, But I mean, it, it was used to the point where. Uh, the president of the United States came to a picket line during a strike. And no one else ever can ever remember that happening. So, I mean, I think you had a situation where President Biden was almost bending over backwards to, to, to support the UAW and to get the UAW support of him. Uh, and ultimately, that's where it led. But it was a bit of a, I think, kind of a silly dance, to be honest with you. Uh, with the election looming, you believe we're going to see President Biden, well, and uh, President Trump a lot in the coming months? Uh, absolutely. I mean, look, M- Michigan is, is you tell us, when we're, we're hiring new reporters, this is one of the things we, we tell people, say, listen, Michigan is one of the most consequential states, certainly in the Midwest, if not in the country, for presidential politics. 
And uh, we've seen candidate after candidate come in here. Uh, when Hillary Clinton lost Michigan in 2016, that was pr pretty much game over at that point. And uh, I think it's going to be a repeat here. And I don't think it's a sure thing. And the polling that the Detroit News has done uh, in conjunction with its other partners uh, seems to give, shows Trump is, is leading uh, single digits, I believe. Uh, but nevertheless, is leading in Michigan. Now, that's a snapshot in time, as we all know. Mm -hmm. But I think I think it's going to be you, that, that underscores why you're going to see the president today and why we're going to see him uh, more times to come and probably the same thing for Trump. The president's campaign has been drawing attention to an interview that Sean Fain did with Neil Cavuto after that endorsement where Cavuto asked Sean, he said, uh, you know, you've had these defections in the past. How concerned are you that your uh, rank and file will follow you? And Fain said, well, make no mistake, I don't expect the majority of our members to vote for President Biden. It, it was, we weren't sure if it was a slip uh, of the tongue. Oh, if, yeah. if, if he misspoke or if, if, if he was being very candid. I, I can't speak to that. I, I, I don't really know. I, I, I kind of doubt it. I think it sounds like a misspeak to me um, because I suspect that a majority of their members probably would vote for for President mm -hmm. Biden, but, um, you know, a majority is 51, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 50.1. I mean, so, I mean, you, you could, you, you could, it could have, but I also think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to vote for Trump. Yeah. Um, if in fact he is the nominee. We, we know that uh, President Trump likes to make every transaction personal and he has really mm -hmm. gone after Sean Fain personally. How could that backfire in the UAW because of Fain's popularity or could it work? I think it could work. Um, I, I don't know. You could argue it both ways. I mean, you know, he, he, I think, what did he call him? He, he had, had a name for him, um, Weapon of Mass Destruction. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's what Trump called Fane. And if, depending on how you look at the, the contract, <laughs> the new contract, I mean, there's some people that might agree with that. Now, he's also uh, marrying him to the Chinese and saying, you're, you're handing the industry to the Chinese. But then Fane said, the only weapon of mass destruction we face in the last 40 years has been corporate greed, and that's Trump's world. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, corporate greed is his, is his tell-all. I mean, explains everything. I mean, when we, when we talked about during the run-up, during the strike and then during negotiations about the issues in the contract, he just kept brushing it all off as corporate greed. Mm -hmm. You know, they could continue to afford these contracts. And when you when you look at the GM's numbers this week, yeah, he maybe he's got a point. I mean, they seem to absorb that pretty well. But last year's numbers really aren't going to tell the tale. I mean, it's going to be what the numbers right. are look like going forward. Uh, and I do think you're going to see some reevaluation of. Uh, of investment in the industry. Uh, Ford in particular, I think, learned a very bitter, bitter lesson is despite the fact that they are so invested in the United States, it came back to haunt them because so much of their production uh, is UAW production mm -hmm. and they don't have stuff outside the United States and Canada and Mexico as an example, or not nearly as much. Well, we um, will uh, we will await the the uh, what we know affectionately as the dog and pony show that will be uh, put on for the benefit of the cameras today, Daniel. As President yep. Biden uh, seeks to convince union households to uh, stay the course and support him in twenty twenty four. Thanks for your time. You bet. Thank you. All right.
Meantime, it was an active shooter drill. These are necessary, but this one happened in a very vulnerable zone at a home for disturbed children, and they weren't notified in advance that it was just a drill. We'll talk about the fallout next on JR Morning at 749. It was a frightening scene, an active shooter drill at a local psychiatric hospital. It turns out no one inside the facility was told ahead of time that it was a drill. Now those who were plunged into this frightening chaos that developed during the drill have reached a settlement and a lawsuit. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne is here with more on the story. Good morning. And good morning, everybody. This drill took place a few days before Christmas in 2022. Residents, employees, visitors at the Hawthorne Center were terrified as they watched this active shooter drill take place. But nobody knew it was a drill. They, and this includes the police who responded with guns drawn, thought that this was an active shooter in the building. That's what they were going on. There were hushed 911 calls, frantic texts to loved ones from those inside the center, employees gathering up kids and barricading them into safe spaces. Again, all a drill. So employees and parents of children at the center have now reached an agreement with the Michigan Health Department for $13 million, $2.9 million allocated for the 50 patients, $5.8 million for the employees. So what do we know about what happened that day? After an investigation, the Michigan Attorney General's office found no criminal violations. A separate internal review concluded no policies were violated. The center's safety officer decided to conduct the exercise, discussed it with the safety committee the day before it took place. He took uh, he contacted the center's director to tell her there would be a drill that day, and he got a thumbs up from her. Employees later said they were subjected to backlash directed at them for how they responded in this drill. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services issuing an apology said it was the best it was in the best interest of the staff and the patients to settle the matter. And guys, the Hawthorne Center in Northville Township will now be replaced with a new psychiatric facility being built by the state of Michigan. But that doesn't mean that wiser policies will be in place. How on earth can the AG conclude that no policies were violated? This is a vulnerable population. Exactly. And you blindsided them. Uh, it this uh, All I can say is this is the conclusion. Now, they did say they would review some of the, the, the uh, health department did say they would review some of their policies so that they could uh, tweak them to make sure they were a little more succinct and more specific. But in terms of what, was there a violation did, that took place? No. It sounds like the CYA policy oh, trumped yeah. the common sense policy. Mm-hmm. But that $13 could, million hopefully will get someone to start looking at, at something and not have something like this happen again. This is a psychiatric hospital of all places to do this and not have the workers know what's going on. I mean, this is... Well, and they have to endure the fallout when you have triggered individuals, and in many cases autistic young people, who are going to be perhaps, through no fault of their own, acting out for weeks. Yeah. There was a way that I guess you could have practiced these important tactics, but like let everyone know what was going to happen or protect the kids in some way. Yeah. Of course, it happens all the time. There's always a a lot of places have active shooter drills, but everybody is on the same page well in advance of this happening. 
um, as one of the workers who was uh, caught up in all this said later, she said, um, this might be, this 13 million might be enough to make people rethink ever doing this again. And also, guys, don't forget that two employees were taken aside and said and told, you guys are going to play the act, you guys are going to be the active shooters. Mm. One of them, of course, they entered the building with no weapons, but one of those people, when the police arrived, was made to come outside with his hands up and put on the ground. He could have been killed that day by police responding. So this was a a terrible situation from start to finish. Yeah, just uh, terribly botched. Uh, well, I, I we'll, we'll hope that there will be a review of the policy now that the attorneys are no longer involved. Yeah, and maybe an admission that that policy needs some significant reviews, revisions. Right. right. Marie exactly. Osborne, thank you so much for being here and giving us that information. Thanks, guys. The um the results are in for 2023. All the campaign finance reports are in, and it shows that uh, President Trump's campaign has 33 million dollars in cash on hand, substantially more than Nikki Haley. But she has raised four million dollars since she lost the New Hampshire campaign. We also know that last night at the very swanky Four Seasons Hotel uh, down was, in Palm Beach. It was not the, actual, the landscaping. Not the, right. Exactly. Yeah. Which one? Not the landscape company. <laughs> okay. The real Four Seasons. Okay. Um, that uh, both Trump campaign and Haley campaign officials met with some of these deep pocket mega donors. Not MAGA, but mega. Mega okay. donors. And okay. that, well, they can be MAGA. Well, yeah. You can go from mega to MAGA in a, in a New York <laughs> right. Depends, right. But what's interesting is we remember that President Trump said that anybody that had supported Nikki Haley in any way would be banished from MAGA land. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that didn't keep his people from their hat in hand pleading with these mega donors to become MAGA donors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are several of them, not all of them, but several of them had donated to the Haley campaign and continue to donate, but are considering what they will do going forward if uh, Trump should become the presumptive nominee. Here's the other wrinkle. While he's got $33 million cash on hand, he spent $50 million of campaign donations on his legal expenses. And well, we're don't... just getting to the expensive yeah. part of his legal trouble. And you Politico s- reports he spent more than he took in over the past year due to those massive legal costs. You don't see any, you know, Trump commercials or, you know, ad buys or anything. He's getting all his publicity from being in court every day. And and he's using and he's it. using it as a platform uh, yes. to campaign. Um, in the Senate race, Alyssa Slotkin is outrating, uh, outraising her competitors. Uh, she's got, uh, she raised $2.7 million over the last three months. Mike Rogers has raised $1 million. He leads all Republican candidates. James Craig, trailing badly, raising just $60,000 over that period. He's hoping to get the Midas touch. He's hoping to get the Trump touch and that that will give him the launch. But right now, it doesn't appear like this is a functioning campaign. But the biggest winner is Rashida Tlaib. Even though she was censured in the House, she raised $3.7 million. It's why you do not see people rushing to oppose her in a primary. And just to give you an idea, she is a House member from a relatively poor district, and yet she has raised more than Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Bob Casey, uh, and much more politically uh, prominent members of Congress. And again, that is in spite of her support for Gaza. Uh, Some of the things that have been said that have been labeled anti-Semitic, 
and she has done extraordinarily well. Uh, For those that are in favor of, uh, you know, the Palestinians in, in, in Gaza, I'm sure, are donating as well. Big of donations course. among yeah. those making donations $75 or less. She has 22,700 first-time donors. Unclear how many of those are from outside the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. But she is rocking it on on the fundraising, and that is what will scare off a lot of primary challengers for that uh, for that Detroit district. And uh, we should point out that uh, Mike Rogers also got two million dollars from a super PAC, which is why you see so many ads up mm-hmm. right now yeah. mm-hmm. for him. Uh, that's benefiting him a lot as well. So he, for the moment at least, clearly has the lead on the Republican side. Alyssa Slotkin uh, trumping. Her challengers on the Democratic side. We'll get you caught up in all the day's headlines, including Michigan's poor performance after the pandemic when it comes to education. We say hello to February. Goodbye, January. Hello, February. uh, So far, it's starting off kind of mild out there. Not a lot of sunshine, kind of gray and dreary, but... Almost 50 today, like 47. It's going to be very... You know, that used to be my... That used to be the point at which we got out the golf clubs was 50. I was going to ask you. Uh, Yeah, no. No? It it might be a little muddy. The ground would be too hard. It could... could, Well, the ball... It's soggy, too. I'll take any, you know... It'd be like driving par five. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It'll just bounce off that frozen ground. Um, just an astonishing hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday. Senate Judiciary members just lighting up uh, tech CEOs. By the way, only two of them came voluntarily. The rest had, had to, to be, be subpoenaed. subpoenaed. And one of them, marshals had to go give it to them. Right. So why don't At you want to come? Expense. Exactly. It was the CEOs of Meta, TikTok, X, other social media companies before the Senate Judiciary Committee to testify when it comes to sexual predators Addictive features, suicide, eating disorders, unrealistic beauty standards, bullying, all the stuff that's on their platforms. Drug deliveries. Yeah, and the people in the audience were holding pictures of their kids who were sexually exploited and then committed suicide. And, you know, Senator Graham is saying, you know what, you guys are responsible. And the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product... You have a product that's killing people. They don't mean it. They started as regular corporate companies, but this is the reality. And there was this heated question and answer between Mark Zuckerberg and Republican Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. And Hawley's saying, you want to apologize to those people behind you? Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I've, Would I'm, you like to do so now? Well... They're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? At that point, Zuckerberg stands, he does turns, do it. And, and it looks at them, and he's hard to hear here, but he says, no one should go through what you've been through. Why we invested so much and are going to continue doing extremely efforts to uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have to suffer. An astonishing admission, something that sure. no corporate attorney would ever oh, suggest no. that you do. No. It, that, what, but that's what made it extraordinary. 
It felt like at least something was moving the needle here a little bit in this discussion. The Internet's been around for a long time. This is a reality that's happening to kids. So what now? Like, let's make some laws. How many more kids have to die? And Senator Klobuchar, uh, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota said, look, folks, this is on us. We're three decades into this Internet experience and we've done nothing. We've got to make this simpler for parents so they can protect their kids. And I just don't think this is going to be the way to do it. I think the answer is what Senator Graham has been talking about, which is opening up the halls of the courtroom um, so that puts it on you guys to protect these parents and protect these kids. And and removing those liability protections. Yes. Now, if you want to underscore the fact that these folks are not watching their own store, we saw it yesterday come out of the, uh, Philadelphia. Oh, absolutely. Uh, where you got a guy who... Uh, father was a uh, federal agent and he was upset with his father calling his father a traitor and he killed his father he beheaded his father he held the head up on youtube well he uploaded a video to youtube it was on youtube for five hours five hours before they took it down these are the problems yeah, what they kind of need a... to monitor what is going on, especially for the person who did the killing. He somehow got radicalized on social on media. social media. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I have a, a security camera at my home that can tell me when an animal is in my uh, yard, mm-hmm. as opposed to a human being. There are algorithms that can do an amazing things. Are you telling me that when a young person on an app gets a picture of someone's genitalia? That there isn't an algorithm that can flag it and report to the parents? You know it has why, to be. Why is this so high? Or uh, the, that somebody is holding up a human, uh, a human head, head that it can't flag that content? They have the wherewithal. Here's to hoping that this hearing meant something and the lawmakers draft some kind of legislation. It was bipartisan as far as who was in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, this yeah, is something was. on both sides. Let's but, get it done. But this is also in the in the interim. It's on us to protect our own kids. Don't look to these social media platforms. They care about profits. The Francis Haugen testimony about how they know their product is addictive because it was built to be. Um, it's, wow. you got, and so look at the safety settings. There are three of them to be aware of, whether it's TikTok or if you go to TikTok, go to settings. Set the privacy settings. Take out the stitch capability. So if your child puts up a video, it doesn't end up in everybody else's bin. Um, also switch from public to private so that, you know, a college admissions counselor can't see what your child is putting up on social media. Uh, the Washington Post has a great article on it, but you can find so many out there. It's not that hard. It's not foolproof, but there are steps you can take. Yeah. And short of just regularly looking at the apps on your child's phone and checking them yourself. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the, kind of the, the bare minimum there. Uh, When it comes to bouncing back from pandemic learning loss, few states have done as poorly as the state of Michigan. This comes to us from a Harvard and Stanford analysis of standardized tests. Uh, During the pandemic, Michigan, on average, some were worse, some were better, but on average lost a full half grade in math and nearly a half grade in reading. In the interim, in spite of millions of federal dollars spent to address it, we've only gained 7%. In math and just one percent in reading leading to harvard and stanford concluding that at this rate of improvement it would take five years for the average student to win back their math skills and decades to recover what they've lost in reading and how is this possible yeah where did the money go 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was it that parents didn't see, didn't, didn't support the efforts or districts spent the money elsewhere? They don't have an answer as to why. We hope at 835 we'll get some uh, clarity on that when we speak to one of the researchers in this group. Uh, but they said, yes, there is a difference between higher and lower income districts. But there are some higher income districts like Rochester, Kalamazoo, uh, Ann Arbor and Portage that they've still lost 80 percent of their learning and have shown no improvement. Were other states over the past year? The other states that they recognize were they were they shut down like Michigan? Um, and that's the real question that we'll ask this researcher yeah. was because we dug a deeper hole by staying closed longer. And mm-hmm. then when we did try to reopen in the city of Detroit, we had these radical groups that were shutting down <laughs> bus yards. <laughs> right. You know, you're making our kids into guinea pigs. No, we're trying to educate them. And the, those kids are still paying for it based on this study. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be uh, checking in with Ford, the new Explorer, the best-selling SUV of all time. Uh, being revealed yesterday. We'll find out what the the new options and exciting new features are for that important vehicle. That's coming up at 819 here on JR Morning. If your home's furnace has broken down, we can't urge you enough that the people to call CNC Heating and Air Conditioning, 800-MY-FURNACE, a simple call that can save you a lot of headaches, 800-693-8762. Being stuck in the cold weather is more than just being uncomfortable. It's dangerous for your home. Pipes can burst. Extreme damage can be done. CNC Heating and Air Conditioning has nationally certified technicians. They're fully licensed and insured, and they offer 24-hour emergency care. They've been doing this for three quarters of a century. 75 years, the Korean family has been taking care of families just like yours, getting most installations completed in just a day. So these cold months, make sure your furnace is tuned up. Take advantage of the carrier cool cash savings from CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. Don't get stuck in the cold. Call that number, 800-MY-FURNACE, 800-693-8762. If you need it, you can get installation of a new carrier cooling system tomorrow. That's right, installation tomorrow. cncheat.com, that's cncheat.com. Carrier, turn to the experts. When it is uh, one of the most important and high-volume vehicles in a company's portfolio, it's a big day when they roll out a new one. And at 6 a.m. this morning, the embargo came off of the all-new 2025 Ford Explorer, America's best-selling SUV of all time. We're joined by Andrew Staley, Ford Explorer brand manager. Congratulations on the rollout, Andrew. Thank you, sir. So I got to tell you, and just from personal experience, uh, I think that few automakers do the interior center console better than you guys do with the tablet format that you have there. What have you done all new for 2025? Yeah, a lot of great changes for 25 model year. Uh, With over 8 million sold since 1990, I mean, that's a lot of customers, a lot of opinions, and a lot of feedback that we've listened to. So for 25 model year, we've done just that. Um, perhaps some of the most radical changes, uh, like you said, occurred in the interior. Um, so the interior is completely redesigned, a complete tear up of the instrument panel, the dash, the seats, door panels, everything. I mean, we went in, we've meticulously crafted a new environment for customers with new materials, new colors, and finely textured surfaces. So everything you can see, look and touch is, is a soft touch 
either leather wrapped and stitched or vinyl or uh, fabric, uh, really went in and, and targeted any use of hard black plastic. You'll see that on vehicle interiors on occasion. So we went in, we targeted those areas and really elevated this interior to luxury status. So uh, a huge change from where we've been in 24 model year. Luxurious, but also you could still do the off-roading stuff you want to do? Absolutely. There's no shortage of capability. So uh, with two powertrain options, we have a, a 2.3 liter EcoBoost i4. So that's your 300 horsepower variant. Uh, if you have uh, a need for speed and you want to take it, next, take it to the next level, the three liter V6 EcoBoost is also available. That's 400 horsepower, 415 foot pounds of torque. Uh, Four-wheel drive optional on every series we offer, and then terrain management system is standard on every series. So that is your selectable drive modes that tailor the vehicle to the terrain you're on. So whether that's deep snow sand or riding on the trail or what have you, it's, it really tailors the driving experience to what you need. Andrew, I know you have seating up to a seven and you have eight USB ports. That's good because everybody likes to have be able to to charge up and also the the modem and the Wi-Fi hotspot because you, you got uh, kids or people in the car when they get in the car from home, they lose their their Wi-Fi. But this way they stay connected. Absolutely. Yep. Connectivity for all three rows. And and the tech story of the 25 mile Explorer is, is certainly one to write about. So with the all new interior comes all new tech. So standard on, on all Explorers is a standard, massive 13.2-inch touchscreen. Everybody's going to get the 12.3-inch digital cluster. And then powering those two displays is the all-new infotainment system for digital experience. So this is a brand-new system. for our Explorer is the first Ford vehicle to get it. And it's really a, a revolution for in-vehicle infotainment. It features a suite of Google applications like Google Maps. So that's going to be your native navigation provider in the vehicle. Uh, Google Assistant, even Google Play Store to download your favorite apps to your vehicle. Apps like YouTube and Amazon Prime Video, where we can actually do video streaming on that center screen inside of your vehicle. Um, take it a step further, you can even do gaming. So there are game options that you can download from the Play Store. Uh, so you can control that right from your center screen or even hook up a Bluetooth controller. Uh, take a PlayStation or an Xbox controller, sync that up to your vehicle, and you can have a gaming experience right from that front row. Wow. We should also point out that whatever technology point you're at when you buy that vehicle, it's not a fixed point. Over-the-air updates can make sure that the technology continues to grow with the upgrades that are available in any Ford product. Andrew, i got to ask you, you know, we, we talk a lot about autonomous driving, semi-autonomous features coming in. In terms of safety and convenience, they come in different packages. You guys call yours Copilot 360 Assist Plus, Blue Cruise 1.2. What additional features will we see in, in that semi-autonomous space? Yeah, so uh, the Ford Copilot 360 Assist Plus, that is a suite of driver assist technologies. That's going to be standard on every Explorer. So that's features like adaptive cruise control with lane keeping, your blind spot information system, all of that's going to be standard. And then optional on some of our trim series is new Ford Blue Cruise hands-free highway driving. So we've offered it on a couple of Ford vehicles at this point, but this is a hands-free feet-free driving experience on, on select highways. So vehicle is controlling the acceleration, the braking, and the steering. So that's really going to make your stop-and-go traffic on a daily commute or the long road trip even more enjoyable. Just the 
the mental fatigue that you get from sitting in that stop and go traffic is really alleviated with technology like Blue Cruise. And how are what, new for, how will the Blue Cruise be priced in terms of that enhanced safety package? Yep. So that is if our we have four trim series: Active, ST Line, ST, and Platinum. On ST Line, ST, and Platinum, it comes standard with the Blue Cruise hardware. So with that, you get a 90-day complimentary trial of Blue Cruise. Mm. Um, and then at the point of purchase, customers also have the choice to decide uh, to purchase a one-year uh, uh, subscription to Blue Cruise. And that's hey. priced at $700. Yep. So, so, so you're not flying blind necessarily. You can check it out, see if it enhances your driving experience and whether it's worth the cost. Interesting. Okay. Exactly. Yep. And if you if you don't opt for the, the point of sale, there's also monthly options as well. So say you have a... A family vacation planned in July, you can buy it just for that month um, and then use it for that long drive uh, for your family vacation. So okay. It's a lot a, of great flexible options. It's badged as a 2025. When will you be again accepting orders on the new Explorer, Andrew? Orders open today. So you guys are hearing it here first. Stop in at your local Ford dealership. We're accepting orders today and then deliveries are expected later this summer. And so, yeah, the deliveries are around about August thereabouts? Yep. All right. Well, congratulations again on the rollout, um, and uh, I'm sure the Ford dealers are eager to get started on that, and I'm sure they can also check it out at Ford.com if you want to see the all-new 2025 Explorer SUV. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, we didn't have a chance to get to the Crumbly yeah. trial. Very important yesterday, some astonishing testimony that she had an inkling that something was going to happen and yet really didn't take any action on it. Yeah, uh, police officers testifying yesterday in the Jennifer Crumley trial about finding the couple hiding in an art studio with Oakland County Sheriff's Lieutenant Sam Marsman, um, recalling Jennifer's reluctance to surrender her phone. She did not want to give me her phone. Um, she seemed irritated about it initially. You know, she was not turning it over. Marsman found her language uh, peculiar when she remarked, He's going to have to suffer, talking about her son, the shooter. Witness Luke Kirtley described spotting the Crumbly's vehicle in the parking lot of a Detroit warehouse leading to their arrest. I remember specifically putting the plate two and two together. It's like, that's a, that's a feeling you've never felt before. While Brian Maloche, a firefighter, and Jennifer's confidant testified about their extramarital affair and Jennifer's distress over their son's act, over her son's actions, the defense raised allegations of police coercion, prompting revelations about the affair. Despite efforts to delete messages, evidence of Jennifer's desperation and pleas for support surfaced. On the day of the shooting, Jennifer Crumbly messaged Maloche and told him that she had to go to her son's school for a meeting and that she was afraid he might do something dumb. Maloche responded by asking Jennifer Crumbly, where the firearm she bought her, for her son was. The mother told Meloche that the gun was in her vehicle, and he told her that, well, it shouldn't be there. Well, the gun was actually in her son's backpack. Meloche says he received a message from Jennifer Crumbly after the shooting that said, We're on the run again, helicopters, not sure where to uh, message you. At one point, Meloche told Jennifer to be careful of anything you type on Messenger or text. It will be subpoenaed and kept track of. The FBI is involved. They can access Anything and everything. Forensic technician William Creer detailed items found in the studio guy, including about $6,600 in cash. There were also right. multiple cell phones and bottles of Adderall and Xanax that were prescribed to Jennifer. Hmm. Astonishing that she says to her boyfriend, well, the, the, the school, after, after the fact, the school officials were so nonchalant. 
Well, perhaps they wouldn't have been so nonchalant had you told, told them about them. the existence of a gun. Yes. Or these internal feelings that you had that he might do something dumb. And you lied and that, said that you had the That, I think, is the, the worst gun. thing to come out in her, yeah. against her. Yeah. yeah. You, you lied to everybody, including your boyfriend. boyfriend. And, you know, he was asking a lot of smart questions. <laughs> he was. I, I wish that some of those school officials had been as prescient in that moment. Uh, much more on JR Morning when we come back. Why is Michigan failing to catch up? Every state in the nation was confronted with learning loss after the pandemic experience and classrooms being closed down for extended periods of time. Uh, most of them got oodles, millions and millions of dollars in federal COVID aid to try to defeat that learning loss and make a comeback. So how did they do? Well, the folks at Harvard and Stanford have crunched the numbers using uh, scholastic tests and have found that when it comes to bouncing back, Michigan got very little bounce at all. Thomas Kane is faculty director of the Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard University and joins us with those findings. Uh, Thomas Kane, welcome to JR Morning. Good, good morning. So in terms of coming back, just kind of state the equation for us. How deep was our hole and how much have we been able to dig ourselves out of it? Have we, are we back to where are our kids back to where they should be? So, so they're not back to where uh, Michigan kids were in 2019 uh, b- before the pandemic. And in, in fact, in some communities, the losses um, were, were, startlingly large. So, uh, for instance, in Lansing, um, Detroit, uh, Kalamazoo, uh, Dearborn, the losses were, you know, more than three quarters of a of a school year. The, there were actually some communities I was surprised to see on, on the list, too. Uh, Ann Arbor and Portage also lost, saw, you know, large losses during the pandemic. Yeah, 80% now, of a grade level in math. Right, which is which is startling. Now, the last year, so what's new about this report is we, we took a look at so what happened during the recovery, and some districts uh, did make uh, you know some substantial improvements uh, last year. Uh, so, for instance, Detroit, Dearborn, both you know improved by you know. M- more than say a, a quarter of a, of a year's worth of, of growth just in that in that one year, which means basically kids learned you know so if they gained a quarter of a grade level in a single year, what that means is kids learned 125 percent of, of what they normally would learn. but a lot of communities still remain you know far behind and the the important thing is there's about eight months of this federal um, money left. So so districts have about eight months in which to to spend the remaining money, and it's really important for parents to find out whether or not their child is behind grade level. Um, find out this spring so that you have time to sign up for. Uh, summer learning this summer before the federal money runs out. Thomas, when you talk about the uh, other states that maybe have done uh, better than Michigan, did 
did they shut their schools down? Because Michigan shut our schools down for quite a while. Did that play a part in that? So, um, so the the one state that so there's one state whose mean achievement is back above 2019 levels, and that is um, that's Alabama. And but even in Alabama, um, not everybody is back to 2019 levels. Uh, um, you know, Montgomery, for instance, is still about a half a grade level uh, uh, behind where where they themselves were in 2019. So, um, and Alabama had their schools closed for, for less time. So, so there, there's clearly part of this was the school closures, but, but I think, you know, whether we agreed with them or not, um, public officials are, you know, made these decisions about uh keeping schools closed and um and now we're seeing that it's poor kids uh low income communities for the most part that are paying the price for these public health measures that that were taken on all of our behalfs and so it's just it's super important that um that communities use these last 8 months with the uh, with the federal dollars to help as many kids catch back up as possible, and I mean the, the sad truth is a lot of districts have not been keeping parents informed. There are a lot of parents out there that, who think their child is on grade level, um, who are not on grade level, and and so school districts need to inform parents this spring before the summer comes around whether or not uh, their kid is is behind grade level so that they can sign up for summer learning this summer or advocate for you know uh tutors or after school programs or 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 other kinds of of things Thomas, that was going to be my question. With these eight months left and the money sitting there, what could parents and school districts do to sort of increase the learning when it comes to reading and math? Jamie, thanks for asking that question because the options have narrowed considerably. School districts can do three things. Number one, they can let parents know this spring if their kids are behind grade level so that parents can sign up for summer learning this summer. That's one. Number two, under these federal budget rules, districts can't spend the money on their own um, employees' salaries after September, but they can spend the money on contracts for things like tutors um, and after-school programs. And so, um, and so, Districts can extend the recovery into next year, and a lot of these communities around Michigan will need uh, the help next year. But the only way they can do it is by contracting um, for, you know, tutoring, after school, uh, other other kinds of of services Mm -hmm. um, next year. A final question for you, Thomas Kane. It's a simple one. You say here between 2022 and 23. Statewide achievement rose by an anemic 7% of grade level in math and 1% in reading, and that is in spite of all the dollars thrown at the problem. So I guess my question is, why? Why 
weren't these uh, extra dollars getting any kind of result? Why was it so much worse in Michigan than in other states? Do we know? And why should we be confident that even if we try to get our kids into one of these programs, that it will raise the level of achievement given the poor bounce back we've had thus far? Well, so we, I'm sure there'll be a lot of work in the next year or two trying to figure out why they're, the communities have that have not seen um, much bounce back. Why? One possible reason uh, that that we'll be investigating is student absenteeism. So student absenteeism is way up since the pandemic. I, I don't actually have the data right in front of me for uh, Michigan on student absenteeism, mm-hmm. but I'm sure, like the rest of the country, it is it is elevated. Chronic. And and for for parents to remember when when a when a child is is out of school obviously they miss that day but then when they get back to school they're sort of not they're a little bit behind so they're maybe getting 70% of what what the teacher is teaching that day right the first day back and then the next day maybe they're getting 80% but but the point is when you lose a day of school, you actually lose more than a day of learning. And and it's also disruptive for the other students in, in class mm-hmm. if there if a teacher is, you know, having to reteach material uh constantly because a lot of kids are out. So, it could we don't know exactly what has been uh a barrier, but but I suspect one of the factors is going to be it will be absenteeism chronic absenteeism yeah yes and by the way this is something that organizations outside of schools mayors uh other community organizations can help with uh that you know so a mayor most mayors can't teach algebra one but a mayor can try to help get the word okay. out about absenteeism and try to right. try to promote um regular school attendance in their community. Use that bully poll. But we should point out that this is the Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard University, and they do have a district-by-district breakdown for Michigan districts that they analyze. So you can see how your specific district is doing. Thomas Kane, thank you so much for the time and the research and effort that was put into this. Well, thanks for, for focusing on this issue. All right. Take care. When we come back, uh, the firestorm against the social media platforms yesterday what might it yield will we see any improvement that's next on jr morning we know that change is more reliable energy for homes and businesses all across michigan and consumers energy knows keeping the lights on is priority number one and from tree trimming to bearing lines to new technology they do have a strategic plan for fewer and shorter outages now last year they cleared branches from more than 7,000 miles of power lines. They replaced poles with sturdier materials that can withstand higher winds. They also added smart technology to make sure that that if there is an outage, other power is instantly transmitted and redirected to where that outage is. They've got this reliability roadmap, and they are working it every day toward a day when even the worst storm does not affect more than 100,000 customers and that all customers are back on in 24 hours. Consumers Energy. A force of change, a force for you. 
and the companies before us. I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. A group of social media CEOs grilled by Congress on Wednesday about the risks their products pose to young people. We're talking about the chief executives of Meta, TikTok, Snap, Discord, and X. Uh, Let's bring in Maria Curry, tech policy reporter for Axios and author of the Axios Pro Tech Policy Newsletter. Maria, we've been talking about this all morning long. Do you think this hearing moved the needle in any way? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, In terms of it moving the needle, I think that, um, you know, if that means getting legislation through Congress, um, I think the answer to that is no. The fact of the matter is uh, lawmakers on the Hill are very focused right now on just funding the government Mm -hmm. and differences remain on the particulars of some of the proposals that are out there um, on how to protect kids online. And then importantly, the House is more focused on comprehensive privacy instead of kids focused measures and so even though yesterday put a massive spotlight on this issue and it got everyone's attention um, you know back to it including senate majority leader chuck schumers the prospects of legislation actually passing through the congress remain you know the same which is unlikely it's been so long i mean we've been dealing with this for 30 years or so and i know that lindsey graham said that he doesn't agree with most of the his uh, colleagues on the other side, most of their policies are what they think. But when it comes to this, uh, he agrees with them that these uh, uh, Meta and these other groups are are really being uh, detrimental to our kids. Uh, calling, uh, they got an internal memo that said that the uh, that Meta estimates the lifetime value of a teen user is two hundred and seventy dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know more than two decades talking about this. This was the eighth time that Mark Zuckerberg had to appear before lawmakers. And it is a really bipartisan issue, but some key differences remain. Um, You know, there are some holdouts in the Senate, about eight senators that still haven't signed on to one of the proposals, the Kids Online Safety Act. And outside of Capitol Hill, um, there's disagreement among advocates. You know, there are some child safety groups that think the bills would have unintended consequences on certain, you know, LGBTQ youth and and other populations. And so, you know, the devil is in the details with these things, even though people agree that overall something needs to be done about protecting children. There are are, uh, platforms that have put in uh, supervision tools into their apps. Um, the, The Snap CEO said, look, we've got 20 million teens using Snapchat, but only 400,000 have linked their accounts to their parents through the parent supervision tool. That's just 2%. Is that because the the platforms are not doing a good job of raising awareness that these tools exist or that parents are just too disengaged? I think that it's difficult for parents to really stay on top of all of the different, you know, social media platforms. And, And I think that one of the the main talking points is this can't just be all on the parents. It's simply too hard. Um, and, and all of the tools that, whether it's, you know, Snap or Meta or TikTok, they're all voluntary and <clears throat> you can opt out of them. And so you have young people that are able to kind of say no to some of these 
um, tools that are maybe put in place automatically, but then you can just go back and disengage. Another thing is, you know, the age verification tool, which, you know, you have to be at least 13 years old to be on the platform, but there are ways around that as well. And so even though all of these CEOs went into this hearing yesterday with a laundry list of the things they've put in place, ultimately it's, it's not enough. And that's why we saw some of them, you know, you asked earlier about moving the needle. One thing we saw yesterday that was different is some of these CEOs actually said, we do support some of this legislation and that's new. Mm -hmm. um, so a few of the bills are actually now, you know, they have the backing of, of some of these tech companies, which is a notable difference. Yes, yeah, Snap, uh, the company that owns Snapchat, the first social media giant to back this COSA bill. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And th I thought it was also poignant when Mark Zuckerberg apologized to the parents. I don't think the parents really thought it was genuine, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this was in an exchange with Senator Josh Hawley. It was very heated. Um, and like I said earlier, this is his eighth time on Capitol Hill. He's done this before. And hearings kind of provide an opportunity for lawmakers to get those moments in, those clips in. It's not really a space for substantive policy discussions. And that was definitely one of the highlights when in that exchange with Senator Hawley, he stood up, turned around, addressed the audience, which, by the way, was one of the most intense audiences of a hearing that, that we've seen. Even the chair mm. of the committee, Dick Durbin, you know, said this is the, the biggest crowd I've ever seen in this hearing room. It was all of the parents whose, you know, children have been victimized online, um, people who themselves have been victimized online, uh, child safety advocates. They had portraits up that, that they held up of, of family members who have passed away. Um, and he, yes, Mark Zuckerberg turned around and, and gave them an apology. But um, I, I don't know how effective it was. Maria, will this become a political issue for this upcoming election? Or can it be or should it be? Well, I think, you know, parents um, wanting their children to be safe online is something that there's a lot of agreement on on Capitol Hill there. It's a bipartisan issue, one of the very few. And then at the presidential level, we have heard former President Donald Trump say that he would like to repeal Section 230, which is the shield that these companies have from being liable for anything that's posted on their platforms. Um, you know, tech policy is never a big elections issue. It's it's not going to, you know, rise to the ranks of, you know, the economy and, and healthcare and immigration. But um, this is something that, that has bipartisan support and popular support across the country. But the crazy thing here is, Maria, when a door plug pops out of a Boeing airliner, there's an instant mm -hmm. regulatory response. There's a mechanism for that. Mm -hmm. If a kid buys drugs or gets bullied to death online, there's no infrastructure to address it. Right. That was an analogy that was brought up at yesterday's hearing as well. And, you know, it drew applause from the crowd. Um, I think it's it's a fair point. I think the issue comes with, you know, if you have these platforms being liable for everything that is happening on their platforms, does it result in the Internet being a more closed off, censored space? And that has been a free speech debate that has been going on now for decades. Thank you, Maria Curry, tech policy reporter for Axios and author of the Axios Pro-Tech Policy Newsletter. We appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. By the way, we should point out that those Axios newsletters, you can sign up for them. They're free. Yeah. They come to your inbox every day and, and whatever your area so of detailed, interest so is. And really good reporting. And, and it, it isn't a volume of stuff. They're right. very respectful of your time. They're very good at that. We thank you for being with us. We hope you have a wonderful Thursday. We can't wait to get to Friday, get the weekend started. All talk is next. We'll see you tomorrow at 6.